always impressed how these girls can just run quickly and find the passage. <laughs> when growing up, uh, and particularly in my younger or early days of, of, of being a Christian, when they asked me to look where revelation was, I would go perhaps at the beginning. Daft, instead of just going to look at the table of content so that I can see the pages. So anyway, that's kind of life. Here we are. Good morning, friends. How are you? Good, 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 good. It's always a great uh, a privilege to be able to gather together, and uh, particularly for us, uh, um, you have uh, this privilege to bring God's word. We know also that there's a massive responsibility on our shoulders, and uh, we, we, we value your prayers. Um, and hope that this morning the Lord will continue to minister to us as now we turn to the proclamation of uh, his word. Please join me in prayer. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we have this privilege to walk into an open building, open the doors without any fear. Thank you that uh, you have invited us to come and be in your presence. You have been already speaking. And we continue, Lord, now as we sit at your word that is about to be proclaimed. We say like little Samuel, speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. Use me as a mere vessel by the power of your spirit. And may the words that you have given me and are about it to come out of this mouth which you created be pleasing and acceptable to you alongside the meditation of our heart and the engaging of our mind as we listen. Cause us to respond for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As my dear friend and colleague, um, Paulus said, we continue through the, uh, the Psalms as we, we've been journeying for quite uh, some time now. Uh, let me ask you a question, if I may. What is the greatest priority of your life right now? Think about it for a moment. And if not now, what is the greatest priority of your life? If I may suggest to you a fitting response, then it will be like this. Nothing can be more important and matters more to us than our relationship to God. To put it in the words that uh, the song we have just sung, 
nothing is more important and matters in our life than in knowing Jesus. Think about this way. If the towns where we are living now, and particularly this town, with all its fame for the university, for the golf course, or golf courses, and the beautiful landscape, if everything were to be reduced to a mass rubble, I think our interest will not be on our buildings, on the university, on the golf course, or anything like that. But actually, it will lead us to a place where we know that what matters is that we shall face or be face to face with our destiny. And that brings us to the place of our relationship to God matters. And this priority or these matters is put before us in the opening line of these two Psalms that we have just read. And if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open because we'll be journeying through these. The opening line of Psalm 15 stands in stark contrast to that of Psalm 14. For in Psalm 14, we hear the fool saying, there is no God. But in Psalm 15, we see one who desires God. One who seems to think that uh, nothing is quite important as having the right characteristic for enjoying communion or fellowship with God. And sadly, this is a priority we too easily lose sight of. This desire to dwell in the presence of the Lord. As I was looking at these two Psalms, it's, 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 this is the message. If you forget anything, everything I want to say, I want you to get this. It's a long sentence, but this is the message which is coming. That mankind is universally deprived, yet they are people who have been and will be saved. And anyone or everyone who is saved must desire God more, enjoying fellowship with him, and be satisfied in him. That's what I want the Lord wants us to hear today. And so let me journey with, journey with me as we unpack a little bit this, this, this statement there. We see that mankind is, is, is perverse. There's a perversion in mankind. 
And uh, the nature of this perversion is, first of all, rooted in defiance and practical dismissal of God. As we hear the fool saying, there is no God. That's the perversion. is deeply rooted in this defiance and practical dismissal of God. Now, it is the fool who is saying there is no God. But notice in our passage, he's saying it in his heart. It's not public. In other words, it is an, he is an atheist who is not public, but who is inwardly saying there is no God. And this person is a fool. Now, a fool, as you can see in the footnote of the Bible that we have in that passage, basically to say, it's, it's nothing to do with intellectual capacity, but rather it is a moral a, a deficiency. So a fool is not someone who walk, walk in the road, move, remove the clothes, or who... who who doesn't who is senseless, but is someone who is very intelligent, can be very intelligent, but is moral, are just corrupt. It is an act of will. He's a person with a heart trouble, not a head trouble. He can be very clever, but at the same time, fool in a matter of spirituality. And atheism, as we can see, or we can see it, seems this practical denial of not only God, but also his working. And, and I went through the scripture to try to look at some kind of fools that we may found, and, and quite a number. And I want to go through all that, but I've just listed them. They're not giving room for God, fool, I call him. Look at in, in, in Psalm 10, verse 4, where this, uh, this fool there, in all his thought, he has no room for God. Nothing says, will shake, he says, will shake me, I will always be happy. God will never find me, never call me to account. In all his thought, he never gives room to God. And then there is also this other one, the mind closing to God's, to God, fool. He is someone who is senseless. He doesn't listen to God, and he closes his mind to all his dealing. And there is also another category of a fool who is the non-desiring to know God's way. Is that a fool we find there? And when you look at Job chapter 21, before we come to Proverbs there, this person tossed God out of his life. Or he tells God in his heart, get off my way. He refused to serve him, neglecting to pray. Such a fool think that in his experience, prayer doesn't matter. It's a waste of time. He doesn't thank God for all that they have. Those kind of fool people in that category, they think they made themselves prosperous without God's help. 
They do not acknowledge him. What about this God's true and disciplined, disdaining fool? He doesn't want the discipline of God. He doesn't want to listen to the truth of God. But it is also this sin mocking God, a sin mocking fool. In other words, he's, he's, he's someone who mocks sin. is not serious. He doesn't do any good. There's nothing. I can do whatever I want. But it is also this wisdom-hating fool. He doesn't like the wisdom of God. He goes his own way. But he's also the striking, causing fool. He likes to cause trouble. This is also another kind of fool. But it is also the glory-seeking fool. And there we hear Saul saying, I acted like a fool. He's just a fool of himself rather than seeking the glory of God. And the trouble in this category is that this fullness in this category is a blindness to God's glory. And you can read also in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, 20 to 21, when the people knew the glory of God, but they refused to glorify God. But it is also this money-loving fool. When you read the story there, basically, he doesn't want God. All he said to himself, let's drink, take life easy, be merry. At the end of the day, tomorrow you die. He's just living for himself. He doesn't have any idea to live for God. He doesn't want to give to God what is more important. And this quote came to my mind. Um, it is, he, he's, he's a martyr, um, uh, Eliot, Jim Eliot. He said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now think of what you have, you hold on into. But you know, it is just a foolish to keep that. But actually, if you give that, you are no longer a fool because you will gain what you will never lose. And the people who do that, they are in this category, the only category which is the great categories of fool is the Christ-honoring fool. And in that passage, Paul is saying, we are fools for Christ's sake. That is the wisest fool among the bunch that we have seen. And this is the category that the Lord wants us to be. The Lord wants us, as St. Andrew's Baptist Church, to be this Christ-honoring fools. The people whom the world will look at, they said, I thought you were clever guys. Why are you doing this kind of, in their eyes, they look like stupid things. But we are honoring Christ. We are honoring Christ. 
I shall come back to that later on. And the way to be spiritually wise is to become a fool in the eyes of the world. When we went through the prayer, um, uh, prayer for, Christ, for uh, Christian unity, there was this uh, benediction that was uh, repeated over and over. I mean, if it did not disturb you, it disturbed me. Because I looked at it and I'm like, oh, Lord. And, 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 and one line when it says, may the Lord bless you just to be full with a foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world. This is the kind of foolishness which is good because we can do something for the glory of the Lord. But sadly, even in the church, there is kind of atheism because many of us who profess to believe in God live like atheists. In other words, we are Christian atheists. In our heart, we are just no difference than this other fool we're saying who says there is no God. Think about it because, and particularly in the circles, by God's grace, I've been a little bit in various strands of churches, in the Presbyterian, now in the Baptist, I've been in the charismatic, but then in the life of those who are not charismatic, if someone of a sudden here, Paulo stand there as I'm preaching, my dear friend say, Abby, stop, the Lord is here. And I think we're going to dismiss him, quickly saying, Paulos, are you not out of your mind? Because sometimes we profess to believe in God, but we live like people who God doesn't exist. I was challenged, and Jane um, and I went for a pastoral visit, and we had a communion. And then this uh, a particular person gave me this book to go and read. The Christian Atheist. Believing in God, but living as if he doesn't exist. I mean, there's, there's quite a lot here. Uh, let me read for you a, a few things here. What he says, we are atheists, we Christian, if we do this. He says, many Maybe like so many, you are a member of a church, but you are secretly still ashamed of your past. Perhaps you have heard about the love of God, but you're still not convinced that God totally loves you. Although you are convinced that God exists, your prayer life isn't what you know it should be. Perhaps like many other well-meaning Christians, you know what God wants you to do but you still do what you want. Or you genuinely want to trust God as your provider, but you find it so hard to actually do. Possibly, you believe in heaven and hell, but sharing your faith with others is still foreign and simply way too intimidating for you. Or you may believe in God, but doesn't 
see much need for the church. And in this book, he has 12 um, ways of knowing whether I am a Christian atheist. And he says, when you believe in God but don't really know him, when you believe in God but are ashamed of your past, when you believe in God but aren't sure he loves you, when you believe in God but not in prayer, when you believe in God but don't think it's fair, when you believe in God but won't forgive, when you believe in God but don't think you can change, when you believe in God but still worry all the time, when you believe in God but pursue happiness at any cost, when you believe in God but trust more in money, when you believe in God but don't share your faith, when you believe in God but not in his church. Hands up if you tick all the box. Hands up if you tick just one box. Hands up if you say, none of this to me. I am the greatest Christian. Even pastors can be caught up on this. And he gives an example. He says, a pastor once asked his church to pray that God should shut down a neighborhood bar. And the whole church gathered for an evening prayer meeting, pleading with God to read the neighborhood of the evils of this bar. A few weeks later, lightning struck the bar and it burned to the ground. Having heard about the church prayer crusade, the bar owner prompted, promptly sued the church. When the court date finally arrived, the bar owner passionately argued that God struck his bar with lightning because of the church member's prayer. The pastor backtracked, brushed off the accusation. He admitted that the church prayed, but he also affirmed that no one in his congregation really expected anything to happen. <laughs> the judge leaned back in his chair, a mix of amusement and perplexed on his face. Finally, he spoke. I can't believe what I am hearing right in front of me is a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and a pastor who doesn't. Perversion is in foolishness, in atheism, which is not only out there, but even in the church, even in our lives. But this perversion of mankind is also expressed in thoughtless neglect of God. As the passage says, no one is seeking God. Simply, people have no desire for God. No longing to know him or enjoy him. But this perversion is also universal. Just in case you're thinking it's out there, right there it says, not even one does it good and is good enough. Well, you may argue, because my neighbor is, I have good neighbors. Some of them cut my grass and even take the bean out. So they are good people. But, the truth is that mankind, in all its attempted goodness, 
is not good enough to enter into the eternal presence of God. For which of us, if we are honest, who truly seek God after, after God from our all heart? And if you are honest, which of us has not gone astray and failed to do what is good? A story told by Davis, Dave Davis, in one of his books, he speaks of a, a, a Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, who was a great preacher. And um, he went to speak uh, at a 1941 uh, mission at Oxford University. As he spoke in this uh, place of intellect, uh, intelligentsia, at the end they said uh, um, there was to be a Q&A. And so he did not expect that maybe a few students are going to come to the venue that was chosen for the Q&A. And as he went there with the convener, the room was packed by the students. And so one of these brightest and classic students stood up and said, I have a question. And of course, in the polite manner, complimented the preacher for what he said, and then he went on, he said, but um, um, this ceremony would have just been good for an uh, agricultural laborer than for an uh, Oxford uh, mind. And you can hear the roar of laughter in the room. And so poor uh, Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones, he constrained, he said, well, before you can uh, uh, tell me or label me as a, a heretic, this sermon, because uh, it's not only for them there, I believe in all my heart that it is also for people like you because we are all miserable sinners. No matter how clever you are, it is for you and for the people out there, or to use the language in the, our town here, it is for uh, the gown and the town. Because sometimes we tend to think, I'm fine. But it is. The verdict is, look at what... Uh, when this passage is quoted later in the New Testament, and that whole passage comes and the verdict at the end there says, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That's the verdict. It's universal. But the psalmist went on to say, yes, but they are people who have been saved and who will be saved. Look at where it says there in verse, let me find the verse. It says there in verse 4 and verse 5. What we see there, they are a kind of people that God calls my people. The company of the righteous. Then the question is, how did God get them? In the midst of all these who are, of course, we are all sinners, and he says, hey, 
They are a category of people I call my people and the generation of the righteous. How, how did God get these? How did these people who are called my people and the generation, how did they get there? The text also assumed what we can call the wonder of grace. There is nothing these people did to be called by God, my people, but only the grace of God. And perhaps in the New Testament, we see that in two passages. The first one is this coming. I'm sorry, it's a bit uh, uh, very small text, but you can, you can read that. Basically, Paul is saying, you remember, we were dead. In other words, we were just like those fools. We were no different. But something happened. Something happened in verse 5. Not because we have done something, but because God in his infinite grace and love made us alive in Christ. Nothing to do with us. Hallelujah, brother. Nothing to do with us. It's the grace of God. We were just fool. We were just uh, those people, but the grace of God took us and lifted us. And in another passage, Paul again say, look at this one in the first Corinthians. He said, do you know that the wrongdoer will not inherit the king of, door, of God? Do you not know that neither the sexual immoral, the idolatrous, the adulterers, nor men have sex with men. Politically these days, sometimes you don't talk about it. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkard, nor slanderer, nor swindler with any. And he said, and that is some of you. Some of us were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, as we sit here, we should never forget where we come from. That we were once upon a time fools and the children of wrath, but God in his mercy took us from there and made us his own. And we owe him all our life a debt of gratitude. But is it okay to just be content? I am saved. No. David goes on to say in Psalm 15, desire God more because you are saved desire him and be satisfied enjoy communion and so what we find here the saved must desire God's communion and that verse one there is a, is, is a verse I mean you may read it in various ways you may think okay this is a sinners or sinners who are seeking to enter the Lord's presence so in other words, you take what comes in verse 2 all the way down as a condition for entrance. Or 
you may look at uh, this verse uh, as uh, the covenant people, because look, they, they are calling God the Lord. And so they are already saved, in other words, if you use the language of the New Testament, and the desire is not that these are conditioned, but they are characteristic of who is in the Lord that needed to be displayed. And so the desire here is how can I desire God more? How can I have a communion with him? And the same question is asked in various places in the Bible. Isaiah 33, verse 14 and 17 tells us there, they are looking at this God, they say, hey, he's not the only God of love, but he's also a consuming fire. In other words, he's a holy God. How can I dwell in his holy presence? And of course, that verse 1 is nothing to do with entrance, but is to do with dwelling and being in the presence of God. How can I live there? How can I have the residence and stay and have a communion? Then we have all these characteristics. I'm not going to go one by one because my time is past. But uh, what I want to say, when you look at verse 2 all the way to verse 5, what you'll see there, first of all, that these are not a complete like a list. When you do this, you tick, then you're fine, you can stay there. But just only suggestive. But also they function as an action, not only feeling. Because this day, oh, I feel the presence of the Lord. Yes, there is a place for that. But as David was saying to there, the action, the doing, and how can we be there? But also they are all individual and personal. But the, more crucially, these characteristics are searching. They are there to search our conscience, whether our conscience is right before the Lord. And as I look at it, I thought, this, they look like a 10 commandment because they are just 10 actually. And when you go one by one, as they range from being a person after God's heart, with a healthy and upright walking with him and displaying and restraining speech, preferred actions and changing integrity to having a quiet contentment with God. As you go one by one, you say, my goodness, this list is just crushing me. I can't fulfill all this. It's just impossible. It's disheartening. I can't even tick two or three boxes there. You cry. Is there any grace in this psalm? And of course, anything that drive us on our knees where we say, I can't do it by my own. I need your help. That is grace. And the good news is, there is only one person, one person who did 
Psalm 15. And this person is Jesus. Now you may say, I don't read that in the New Testament. How come? If you go back to Psalm 2, verse 6, you'll see what is going on in the Psalms. When he had the question, who will dwell in the sanctuary? Who will live in a holy hill? The Lord already had his king. In Psalm 2.6, he said, I have set upon Zion on the holy hill my king. And this king, as Psalm 2 is read in the New Testament, is about Jesus Christ. He is the only one, only one to begin with, because this Psalm talks a lot, Psalm 15 talks a lot about not having anything to do with the heart of, or the speech. He's the only one who never committed sin and have any deceit in his mouth. Jesus Christ. In other words, us, united in Jesus, who not only came to the temple, but he himself is the temple. And we too become part of the temple. We can dwell in the presence of the Lord. It's only in Jesus Christ, my dear friend, that we found ourselves not only admitted in the presence of the Lord, but living there and being able by his grace as we look to him to live like this person because by the power of his spirit he convicts us whenever we have sinned. Yesterday for those who were at the prayer meeting in the morning as we went through the presence of the Lord I just felt just and I cried like Isaiah woe to me I am a man of unclean lips and I live among the people of unclean lips. That's me. I don't know you. But only in Jesus that we are able to do this. Yes, there's a perversion, but God can take us out there and place us in his presence where we can desire him and have a communion and be satisfied. Let me finish with something very also encouraging. It is found in the last phrase of verse 5 of that Psalm 15. It says this He who does these things will never be shaken. Can you see what is happening? In verse 1, how can I enter? How can I dwell there? You are waiting for a response saying, whoever does all these dwells here. But actually it says, whoever display all these, look at the bonus, an assurance. That's what I call here. It is an assurance supplied to us as believers. We will never be shaken. There is a security that is not only 
now transient, but the security that is permanent in the presence of the Lord. That's why when you dig deep, prayer is something very exciting because it comes down to this verse of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. God is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. Can you imagine? He was asking, they're asking who can dwell, but then God gives a bonus. God gives more than we expect. When we come to him, whether in prayer or in reading God's word, so that we may desire him and be satisfied in him and become full for Christ's sake, there is more we get from the Lord than we expect. Desiring God. I pray that today God may remove any foolishness in our lives that is the foolishness of the world and that he may give us the foolishness for Christ that we may be people who dwell in his presence and who know that he guarantees us safety. Do you have that safety for your life today? And do you have that safety for your life eternity? Make this your toughest priority. If you haven't gotten that relationship, and you and I, you know that the Lord has saved us by his grace. May we desire him more and know Christ more and better in our lives. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit continue to cement the truth which you have planted in our heart, in our mind. And if there is anyone here, Lord, who has not yet come to that place of knowing you, would you continue to draw that person to you? And for some of us, or most of us who have already known you, and yet living our life as if you do not exist, would you draw us once again closer to you, that we may listen to your love, your word, and that we may have a communion with you. Make us a fool for Christ's sake. In his name we pray.